War and Peace, Second Epilogue, Chapter 7, read for LibriVox.org by Kate McKenzie. When an event is taking place, people express their opinions and wishes about it, and, as the event results from the collective activity of many people, some one of the opinions or wishes expressed is sure to be fulfilled if but approximately. When one of the opinions expressed is fulfilled, that opinion gets connected with the event as a command preceding it. Men are hauling a log. Each of them expresses his opinion as to how and where to haul it. They haul the log away, and it happens that this is done as one of them said. He ordered it. There we have command and power in their primary form. The man who worked most with his hands could not think so much about what he was doing, or reflect on or command what would result from the common activity, while the man who commanded more would evidently work less with his hands on account of his greater verbal activity. When some larger concourse of men direct their activity to a common aim, there is a yet sharper division of those who, because their activity is given to directing and commanding, take less part in the direct work. When a man works alone, he always has a certain set of reflections, which, as it seems to him, directed his past activity, justify his present activity, and guide him in planning his future actions. Just the same is done by a concourse of people, allowing those who do not take a direct part in the activity to devise considerations, justifications, and surmises concerning their collective activity. For reasons known or unknown to us, the French began to drown and kill one another, and, corresponding to the event, its justification appears in people's belief that this was necessary for the welfare of France, for liberty and for equality. People ceased to kill one another, and this event was accompanied by its justification in the necessity for a centralization of power, resistance to Europe, and so on. Men went from the west to the east, killing their fellow men, and the event was accompanied by phrases about the glory of France, the baseness of England, and so on. History shows us that these justifications of the events have no common sense and are all contradictory, as in the case of killing a man as the result of recognizing his rights, and the killing of millions in Russia for the humiliation of England. But these justifications have a very necessary significance in their own day. These justifications release those who produce the events from moral responsibility. These temporary aims are like the broom fixed in front of a locomotive to clear the snow from the rails in front. They clear men's moral responsibilities from their path. Without such justification, there would be no reply to the simplest question that presents itself when examining each historical event. How is it that millions of men commit collective crimes, make war, commit murder, and so on? With the present complex forms of political and social life in Europe, can any event that is not prescribed, decreed, or ordered by monarchs, ministers, parliaments, or newspapers be imagined? Is there any collective action which cannot find its justification in political unity, in patriotism, in the balance of power, or in civilization? So that every event that occurs inevitably coincides with some expressed wish and, receiving a justification, presents itself as the result of the will of one man or of several men. In whatever direction a ship moves, the flow of the waves it cuts will always be noticeable ahead of it. To those on board the ship, the movement of those waves will be the only perceptible motion. Only by watching closely, moment by moment, the movement of that flow, and comparing it with the movement of the ship, do we convince ourselves that every bit of it is occasioned by the forward movement of the ship, and, though we were led into error, by the fact that we ourselves were imperceptibly moving. 
we see the same if we watch moment by moment the movement of historical characters that is re-establish the inevitable condition of all that occurs the continuity of movement in time and do not lose sight of the essential connection of historical persons with the masses when the ship moves in one direction there is one and the same wave ahead of it when it turns frequently the wave ahead of it also turns frequently but wherever it may turn there will always be the wave anticipating its movement whatever happens it always appears that just that event was foreseen and decreed wherever the ship may go the rush of water which neither directs nor increases its movement foams ahead of it and at a distance seems to us not merely to move of itself but to govern the ship's movement also examining only those expressions of the will of historical persons which as commands were related to events historians have assumed that the events depended on those commands but examining the events themselves and the connection in which the historical persons stood to the people we have found that they and their orders were dependent on events the incontestable proof of this deduction is that however many commands were issued the event does not take place unless there are other causes for it but as soon as an event occurs be it what it may then out of all the continually expressed wishes of different people some will always be found which by their meaning and their time of utterance are related as commands to the events arriving at this conclusion we can reply directly and positively to these two essential questions of history number one what is power number two what force produces the movement of the nations number one power is the relation of a given person to other individuals in which the more this person expresses opinions predictions and justifications of the collective action that is performed the less is his participation in that action number two the movement of nations is caused not by power nor by intellectual activity nor even by a combination of the two as historians have supposed but by the activity of all the people who participate in the events and who always combine in such a way that those taking the largest direct share in the event take on themselves the least responsibility and vice versa morally the wielder of power appears to cause the event physically it is those who submit to the power but as the moral activity is inconceivable without the physical the cause of the event is neither in the one nor in the other but in the union of the two or in other words the conception of a cause is inapplicable to the phenomena we are examining in the last analysis we reach the circle of infinity that final limit to which in every domain of thought man's reason arrives if it is not playing with the subject electricity produces heat heat produces electricity atoms attract each other and atoms repel one another speaking of the interaction of heat and electricity and of atoms we cannot say why this occurs and we say that it is so because it is inconceivable otherwise because it must be so and that it is a law the same applies to historical events why war and revolution occur we do not know we only know that to produce the one or the other action people combine in a certain formation in which they all take part and we say that this is so because it is unthinkable otherwise or in other words that it is a law end of chapter seven this recording is in the public domain